This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Jeske, and today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder and CEO of MP, and Dr. Christopher Boric. Dr. Boric is a professor of political science and the director of the Muhlenberg College Institute of Public Opinion. Dr. Boric, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Sam and Nathan. We are so excited to have you, someone who is at the top of their field and especially this close to an extremely important election. To start off, can you just give us a bit more about your background how did you get into public opinion research and to where you are today? Sure, Sam. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a political scientist, first of all, kind of an empirical uh, methodologist. And uh, I've been engaged in polling now for almost a quarter of a century. It tells you a little bit about my age. I uh, started back in Wisconsin at my first job um, in the late 90s. And then when we moved back to Pennsylvania, my wife and I are natives of the valley or well northeastern pennsylvania and moved uh to the lehigh valley uh at muhlenberg i started along with some uh other folks in the department and at the college the institute of public opinion almost 20 years ago and uh we've been engaged in public opinion research in pennsylvania and nationally since most of our our politics work is done in pennsylvania a lot of our policy work especially on climate and energy issues, is done nationally. We have a partnership with the University of Michigan since 2008 on climate and energy issues. Um, and so right now, everything seems to be focused uh, squarely here on in Pennsylvania on, on the, the elections and the, the final stretch. Awesome. So I would love to start off by discussing the work that you do now at Muhlenberg's Institute of Public Opinion. Um, your polls are one of only six to receive an A-plus rating from 538, which some people look at as, you know, the gold standard of polls and, and modeling and things like that. What do you do differently that makes your polls so highly regarded? You know, it's it's a great question, and we're we're thankful that uh, 538's given us a, a, a good rating. I, I think some of that is a testament to the type of work that we've done and the, the way we've approached it. I think some of it's probably a little bit of luck. Um you know, over time and maybe uh, fallen on the right side of, of uh, some some final projections. Um, but but nonetheless, I think it is a, a pretty good measure of how we approach things. We are, I mean, if you look at our polls, you know, first of all, I would say, uh, look at polls, be transparent, uh, see how they do their, uh, their methods, how it's uh, perhaps changed over time. Look for the little things. Uh, and and require that anytime you appraise uh, polls, and if someone's not going to share that with you, not going to share their their methods and even their data, uh, be suspicious. Um, so what we've done is try to first of all be as transparent of what we do, and um, to to really focus on the on the little things. You'll, you'll I think folks that'll look at our poll, they'll often say, well, you don't have gigantic samples. You know, we might do four or five hundred, six hundred people in our samples, um, but we'll work hard on that sampling. 
will, for example, most uh, our election polls are still uh, telephone based, largely cell phone at this point. But we'll try to get people that are selected in our sample from a probability perspective. Uh, we'll try really hard to get them to answer uh, our request. Now, if someone tells us no, they don't want to do it, we're not really going to going to try to spend a lot of time getting them to do that, to convert them to, to participating. But if we can't get you on the first try, the second try, third try, uh, we'll keep trying <laughs> uh, to make sure that our sample is representative of the groups we're looking at. Um, that's, a, that's the art of polling, I always say, is, is knowing how to take a you know, fairly small subgroup of a population and use it to make inferences about a, um, a larger group, a population. And, and so much of that is making sure you start with a good sample and then doing things that I think are, are reasonable, weighting, um, using weights that are appropriate for the population you're trying to, to target and uh, spending time thinking about those, adjusting those over time, looking at what matters. In fact, in this race, one of the big adjustments we're making and that we're hoping to uh, uh, that is a, a positive uh, change is, is bringing in educational attainment, which other pollsters had used in the past. We didn't up until 2018 uh, and making, again, adjustments that we think are merited by the research. So I guess all those things combined uh, to us have, have helped us um, as an institute uh, stay pretty uh, in line with the, the changes in the industry and, and hopefully produce results that continue to be robust. So, Professor, that's actually a, a perfect transition to my next question. Um, polling recently has become a bit of a partisan issue, and I think the weightings of different variables kind of opens up uh, a little bit of credibility in a way to President Trump, for example, saying polls are fake, right? Don't trust the polls. They manipulate the polls. They're fake, quote unquote. That's what he would say. I imagine that makes your job more difficult, not only in trying to present your results to the public, but even just getting people to speak with you. Has that affected you in any way, his uh, very public uh, adverse opinion of pollsters? And are you finding that people are uh, not sharing honest opinions with you? Oh, those are, are great questions, Nathan. Um, and it's I think the president is, um, in terms of his relationships with polls, very interesting I, I can't think of a president that's been more interested and cites polls more than President Trump does. So, so certainly he um, looks to polls uh, at the same time as he denounces them. It, it, I guess it's uh, analogous to the media. Uh, he, of course, has a, a, a turbulent relationship with the media, but I, I can't think of a president that also likes to engage with the media more. So, um, so, so has he had an impact on the industry? Well, uh, yeah, in, in some ways, his, his ideas, uh, his categorization of the polls uh, has shaped how people interpret them. I think in this cycle, you're seeing um, many people discount what they're telling us about the race. Uh, people are, are, you know, doing uh, adjustments that they think represent what the polls aren't telling us. And, you know, some of those adjustments, I think, are kind of just based on a feel. Um, and that's in large part, I think, due to what the president suggested also and due in some parts to how we perceive what happened 
back in 2016, not maybe what actually happened, but how we perceive it uh, to be. Um, so I think the president certainly, like he has in many aspects of American life, um, had an impact on what we think about the polls. Um, one of the things that that may manifest in is, is, is there participation changes? We, we've seen anybody that follows polling knows that we've seen dramatic declines in response rates over time. Um, when I started doing this 25 years ago, our response rates were in the 30s, uh, mid-30s. Now they're high single digits. They've actually been a little bit higher uh, during the pandemic and during election season, relatively so, but it's still much harder. I don't think the president has contributed to that. And in the end, I I just don't see a lot of evidence regarding the the potential that supporters of the president are reticent to share their opinion. I think that is, in some ways, one of the myths of 2016, that that's what happened at the end. Uh, a lot of good evaluations, post-mortems done by groups like the American Association of Public Opinion Research, cast doubt on that. I'm not saying it didn't have some effect and in some particular polls and some particular races, but largely a lot of the misses, if you will, in 2016 um, were more the product of some decisions on waiting. Uh, the lack of high quality polls in a number of states, particularly Michigan and Wisconsin, and a lot of late movement, people moving at the end of that race rather than not telling uh, their their actual opinion. So, uh, sure. So, kind of as long winded answer, the president has affected lots of uh, aspects of American life. I think polls are no exception. Uh, but one of the great things is about polling is we'll get to see relatively quickly just how the performance looks, you know, go back to 2016. I think the performance wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. The 2018 cycle was actually a pretty good cycle. And we're going to get some validation pretty soon about our methods uh, in, uh, in this cycle. So before we do, you know, dive more into this upcoming election, let's go back and like you just did talk a little bit about 2016. A lot of people have the perception that polling can't really be trusted anymore because of the shock of Donald Trump's win four years ago. And as you said, you know, that is the fault of some weighting issues and some differentiating in the quality of certain state polls. As a pollster, what is your response to that sort of public perception? Were the polls really as wrong as everyone thinks they were in 2016? Or is that sort of a myth that is born out of you know, some false confidence by certain parties. Yeah, and it was probably the most common question I get, Sam. And uh, I, I think it is um, certainly been uh, intensified in terms of what people remember uh, and not being perfectly accurate. Uh, you know, I, I know you saw Sam uh, talk. I've given a good bunch of talks this fall. And I like to show people just what those final results were in places like Pennsylvania. Uh, in 2016, when you look at the aggregates, and the aggregates showed a very close race. You know, the real clear politic average, which is one of the, the aggregators, had it at about two points. President won by less than one point. That's not bad. Historically, that's not bad. A little bit more often, Michigan and uh, Wisconsin, and again, many fewer polls there. Um, but 2016 wasn't a, a disaster. It was, I guess, a disaster from a public relations perspective because the the, the change with that, those, while it was fairly close, it flipped from one candidate to the other. All those close races that we saw at the end all ended eventually on the on the Trump side of the the results, and 
that uh, that certainly has left people with a, a really kind of bad feel about what happened in, in 2016. But I encourage people to go back and look exactly what the polls say. And I, I, you know, I think a lot of people have now looked at the national polls and it was a very good cycle nationally. Uh, the final average had Hillary Clinton winning by about three. She won by two. That's better than, than most cycles. Um, so it's not to, to discount some of the problems again in those swing states and some of the waiting problems that I talked about, but it's to put it in perspective. Now that perspective might not be broadly known within, you know, the, the electorate. And of course that, that matters. So how people think about the polls is just as important as how the polls really performed. So now let's turn to 2020, this upcoming election that we are in the middle of, actually. It's no longer just vote on election day. Uh, we kind of have an election season. So we've got lots of questions. And I know you're not in the prediction business, but you are in the probability business. So from what I have seen of the most recent polls is that, yeah, Joe Biden seems to be leading and leading with a healthy margin. I guess my question is, could there be another polling error in Trump's favor that results in him winning the Electoral College like we saw in 2016? And then vice versa, theoretically, couldn't there also be a polling error in the opposite direction, leading to an even larger Biden victory than what is being uh, forecasted? Uh, Exactly. There could be. Uh, There could be in both directions. I love that you included the other side of the the curve, if you will, because we do see that race to race. 2012, um, the polls understated Barack Obama's performance. Um, people didn't really care that much because it, you know, the, the same result uh, appeared as the polls generally were suggesting just by a different margin. Um, but, but certainly in this cycle, we can see some type of systematic, uh, broad, uh, polling errors that can come out. And usually that's what does happen. It comes across a number of states or a number of groups of states that tend to correlate. And when you think about that, you, I, I, I don't have a logical suspect for what that might be. Uh, it could be something in turnout. It could be some kind of you know, miss uh, or underestimate of, of, of specific groups in turnout. And that's always part of the challenge of, of polling. But certainly there could be. Uh, history tells us that we do see a, uh, a modest degree in almost every cycle, and they, they vary cycle to cycle, and they do flip from party to party. And so I have nothing to tells me other if people say, well, look at 2016. I say, well, yeah, 2016 had a you know systematic bias that favored the, the, the Democrats. Does that necessarily repeat itself four years later? History says now. Uh, could it? Sure. Uh, do I know exactly what would produce that? No. Uh, I know some of the things that were corrected since 2016 fairly broadly within the industry. And I think those are probably adjustments that might limit those same things from being repeated. But could there be some new things that are introduced? Certainly. Um, and the, the big question would be to what level? Have we seen historically you know, let's just say the polls were consistent this week and there wasn't a lot of closing, which is certainly not, uh, you know, set in stone. We do see closing going on. But say the president was trailing in the swing states, five, six, seven points, the key swing states, trailing nationally, eight to 10 points. Could we expect that uh, history would 
or does history give us evidence that those types of systematic polling errors can really change the picture? I'd say that's a, an, a low probability event, not an impossibility, but a low probability event. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So when it comes to polls for 2020, I've personally seen a bunch of polls that have multiple outcomes based on different levels of turnout. For example, a pollster will release a poll that has statistics from a normal turnout model, but also statistics from a higher turnout model. For example, we've seen ridiculous turnout numbers for early voting in a bunch of states so far, like Texas has already surpassed more than 80% of their 2016 vote. How does that work when it comes to releasing different results within one poll based on different levels of turnout. How do you predict those sort of things? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the turnout models, every pollster has to account for that. They have to try and predict. And they use from the, the frame you look to select your participants. Are you using voter files? Are you using, you know, random uh, kind of selection within the, uh, the, the population and trying to drill down? There, there are many, many ways that individuals, uh, individual pollsters try to do that. And within that, you can adjust for various models um, that are turnout potential based on what you find. So for example, if, if I could, I could do this with one of our polls where I might uh, just take the people, uh, this would be kind of a, a blunt version of that. I could take within our screener, our in-survey screener, where we ask, well, how likely are you to vote uh, as one of the potential data points that we have. And if somebody says they are definitely going to vote versus very likely, that could be one modest way you could look at turnout. So you could just test all your results among the definites and those that are very likely. Now, we've done a whole bunch of other things to even get to that point to see if we think they're likely by looking at past voting behavior and other things. But we might say, well, okay. Is there a difference between those that are at least self-reporting to us they are definitely in and those that say they're they're most likely in? And you could report that. Now, we don't. I might sometimes throw that in as a crosstab. Um, but I, I think it's not illegitimate of some pollsters, um, even though some people get a little cranky at this, to put out different estimates. Um, they're saying, well, if it does happen to be large turnout, or if it does moderate or lower than expected, what impact would that have? Those are data points. Now, they can get used and um, kind of uh, discussed in ways that aren't always uh, in line with the, what I think the, the models are projecting. Um, but certainly, I think it's, it's, it's in most cases a goodwill effort on the part of pollsters to try and give more complete information. Um, and 
we, we don't happen to, to, to do that, but I'm, I'm not uh, against some pollsters deciding to do that. So transitioning now to thinking about what we actually will see and live through on election night, the common narrative is that President Trump will win uh, the, the in-person vote totals on election day, only to have those results shift more towards Joe Biden because of the early vote or the mail-in voting disparity. And before you actually hopped on, Sam and I were having an in-depth conversation about which states count ballots as they're received or which states count ballots a week or two weeks prior to election day. So states like Ohio and Florida and Georgia are able to count their ballots prior to election day. So those would actually be included in the election day total. So do you think there is real weight to the idea that Trump could look ahead on election night only to see results shift over time? Or do you think based on the where turnout is, where uh, the laws are in terms of counting the ballots, that we could actually have a winner on election night? Um, yeah, I'm going to sound weaselly. I think ye- yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> and that certainly for places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, given that the states limit the ability to count until election day for all the ballots, those millions of ballots that have been counted early, uh, those results are going to trickle in. Uh, a lot of places in Pennsylvania have tried to find ways to count those as quickly as possible. It's just a really big task. Um, and I, I therefore think you might see that so-called red mirage uh, or red advantage early on election day because of the way that ballots are reported, uh, results are reported largely from in-day voting, which our polls say very much advantages the president and the Republican Party. Uh, when we ask people in our polls, which way are you going to vote? There's an enormous difference among Democrats and Republicans in the likelihood that they vote by mail or in person. And so if those ballots are counted uh, earlier and reported earlier, it will show something different than what the final results will and something significantly different. That's just math uh, telling us that's going to be the case. Now, how quickly they count those other ballots um, that came in via mail during the day and include those uh, could mitigate that in some ways, but um, you know we'll see how good the counties are and how they can do that. It's again a pretty big administrative task. So I, I do believe in a place like Pennsylvania, the early results may look significantly different than what the final results look like uh, based on who's voting and how they're being counted. That goes the same for Wisconsin. And funny, by the way, the two states I've polled in my life and been involved in are happen to be those states. Uh, the but as you mentioned, other states. Uh, are probably going to report earlier based on early count, um, the ability to process those earlier and include those earlier. And let's imagine that we had some clarity on election day from some of the other big early swing states like Florida or North Carolina. Uh, you know, if, if, if they broke in favor of Joe Biden, uh, in all likelihood, the results in Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin are, are going to be less meaningful, uh, and we might have some clarity on the on where the race stands. However, if, if those states are very close and maybe still in the process of making their own counts, um, and that in um, in those states, there uh, you know there's there, it's not sure. We we very well might be looking to. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin well into the week to get 
to get results that are are changing as they should by the way probability wise they should change if it's it's a different cohort in the electorate whose votes were counting compared to those that voted on election day so i know you are you know mainly a pollster that is most of what you do but i believe you also do dabble in some modeling um so i'd love to hear what do you see happening when all of the votes are counted what do you think the odds are that either party takes the presidency the senate and the house yeah and i am you know i'm a uh a, a what I would call a, a low-key modeler. My models are pretty simplistic, and and uh, I, I would not you know compare myself to the real uh, modelers out there that spend a lot of time coming up with their models. And mine are 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 largely poll oriented as as the input. Um, and based on that, I I do see probability leaning in the direction of um of the Democrats and Joe Biden uh, at the at, you know, I, I'm not going to make predictions because I don't I don't do that. But I say the odds of of Joe Biden winning the electoral or excuse me, the, the popular vote are overwhelming. Uh, I, you know, the, the margins that we're looking at, the changes, um, you know, demographically, even in four years and combining that with the, the results in 2016, give me all kinds of confidence um, that, that we're going to see a a national Elect popular vote win for for Joe Biden is um, a lot of that is fueled by incredible margins in places like California uh, that that are drivers of popular vote, um, and so the electoral college, which everybody really should care about, uh, also leans when you take all the potential kind of paths forward for the candidates and you look at this to to Biden, not nearly as much as the popular vote, but certainly. Um, enough to make it much significantly more likely that that Joe Biden wins this race, even with a a regular at this point, and this is at this point, not looking at what where we are at the end of this week, but even if there is a uh, an error similar to what we saw in 2016, and that advantages uh, the president. Um, same with the Senate. I mean, the House is, the House is, I mean, you'd, you'd have to give me really, really, really long odds to, to put somebody down on the Republicans. Uh, it's, it's just, it, you know, you look at the path, it's just not going to happen. And the Senate is, is uh, of course, much smaller sample, much small number of races. Uh, but almost all the indicators that, that seem to be in play at this point lean Democrat um, to get to their number of votes. Now, is that number of vote? Depending on the vice presidential decision, who, how how that goes is is it? Do they have to pick up three or four? They're, they're going to lose uh, Alabama uh, in all likelihood. So do they probably pick up have to pick up four or five? Are they there? The polling says they they're there. Some of them look really high probability. Places like Arizona and Colorado, and others look modest probability and going in their favor. So. Again, if you were asking me if I had to lay my own money down, I'd want, um, if I was going to put one of my dollars down on, on the Republicans to win the Senate, I would, you know, I'd say I want at least two of yours. Two to one odds. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty substantial, no? Yeah, it's substantial, but 
don't, you know, I, I, as a probability guy, I said, never discount the one, right? Yes. Sure. Three, one and three. <laughs> okay. Is no, that out. makes sense. No, that, that, that makes sense. So I guess my, my question about the models is something that I've actually been wondering for quite some time. Do you take into account things like voter suppression? Um, you know, I, I know that's kind of a, a loose term that gets thrown around a lot, but if you look at Texas, for example, with one Dropbox per county or, you know, election machine dysfunction that seems to always happen in Georgia with Brian Kemp, you know, you know, there, there are these kind of uh, funky things that happen on election day. Is there a way to incorporate those into your models around voter disenfranchisement? Yeah, it, this is a question I've been getting a lot lately, and I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. And, and I imagine there is a way to build that in, I think it's really difficult. Often what we build into our models are kind of past performance, past um, you know behaviors, uh, things that we can kind of wait to and adjust to, uh, to come up with our model predictions. And I, I, I imagine, you know, and I just haven't dug that deep into it, there are kind of estimates that people start to build around some of the things that you mentioned the impact of these types of um, factors that might be under the umbrella of suppression. Um, but I think it's challenging. And like I do with uh, with waiting, I always tell people, so why don't you wait for that? Well, I'll, I'll wait if I have a really good sense of the population that I'm looking at and I could adjust to something I'm pretty sure about. And I, if not, I don't wait. And that's why I didn't wait towards education in 2016 in our poll. We, we decided not to because I thought I could do more harm than good by actually waiting to something that I didn't think was as robust yet as it really turned out to be. And that was, you know, a bad call on my part. Um, and so the same thing with voter suppression, how do you build that in to a model? You know, how do you, people have asked me about building it into polling and I said, I just, you know, how do I build that in? Uh, I could look at kind of what ballots are thrown out and, but i I think that's a, a risky, risky endeavor. So certainly part of the election scene in the America right now, it's cert- I, I think it has the potential to most uh, clearly affect those final results and therefore maybe put some gaps between what was estimated and what happened. Uh, but trying to adjust for it certainly is a, a methodological challenge. And we'll, we'll see if some people are experimenting it right now and how it performs. So one more question about kind of the modeling world overall. How has the drastic increase in mail-in voting this year affected things like modeling and polling? Obviously, in normal election years, we see the vast majority of voting happen in person on election day at the voting place. People go into the booth and and they, they vote for the candidate that they prefer. Um, that's obviously not the case this year. We're, we're over a week out from the election and we're seeing crazy voting numbers already in states. Like I mentioned earlier in Texas, they've passed over 80% of their 2016 turnout. People are voting early and by mail at, um, insane rates. So how does that affect the modeling and polling business? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things you have to think about, Sam, is just, do you account for that as a driver of, of higher turnout, right? What drives turnout, energy levels, access to ballot? Uh, you know, ways that it are easier to vote. You kind of put all those things into the mix. And and certainly, um, it, you know, it, it, at the end, you're trying to understand voter preferences 
on the on the whole, right? And so, you know, early voters might vote one way, people voting on election day might vote the other way, but your estimate is for where that population as a whole will end up, you know, the, and that's how we ask the question. And we have to, by the way, like things like early voting make us ask questions differently. If you voted already, who did you vote for? If you're gonna vote, who are you, who are you gonna go vote for? Um, but in the end, you're, you're aiming at a target. And you know that that's where the turnout comes in. And so even if the turnout's early or late, the eventual turnout is what you, you have to hit. And um, in polling, you know, that's, you know, just from wording to, to how we kind of structure the surveys has to adjust to the reality of how people are voting. And uh, in the end, um, you know, that final estimate, people don't care. <laughs> they'll, when you get inside the numbers, they'll care, you know, well, who, how did your early voters look? How did, just like with exit polls, but on election day, they'll care about how accurate the, the final estimate was. So, Professor, I want to thank you for a fascinating conversation. Our last question for you is, how can people find you? How can they follow you and your work and uh, keep tabs on you as you move forward? Uh, sure. Uh, great question. Uh, yeah, the easiest way is just to go uh, probably just search for the Institute of Public Opinion at Muhlenberg. Uh, go right to our website. It has all our data, has our, um, you know, our most recent reports on the homepage, uh, has all our information, information about me, our past polls, um, how you can contact us. So, uh, that's probably the easiest and most comprehensive way to find out what's going on with the Institute. Great. Dr. Bork, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to hear your extensive knowledge on such an important topic. And I'm sure everyone who listens, myself and Nathan included, learned a ton. Well, Sam and Nathan, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled that you, uh, are engaging in these kind of cool, uh, inside the the methods discussion so uh and that you can provide a venue for uh for geeky methodologists loving people like me thanks awesome thanks so much and to our listeners thank you as always and be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on apple podcasts the google play store spotify or stitcher follow us on social media at millen politics subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com slash and of course stay tuned for our next episode thanks